0: Welcome to Alchemergy. My name is Dennis William Hauck and together we will explore the ancient mysteries of alchemy. There are a lot of misconceptions about how the alchemists actually worked in their meditations and what they actually did. There's a lot of strange notions, but uh, there was no special position with the alchemists in their meditations. They sometimes kneeled, sometimes sat, sometimes laid in a bed, sitting in a chair. Reading a book, that type of contemplation and concentration is what led into the meditations a lot of times, according to some of the, the journals of the alchemists. So it was a natural thing. There was no posture. There was no real preparation. Uh, in a lot of ways, the type of meditation they practiced was the contemplative prayer that was very popular in the Middle Ages, the Christian mystical prayer but there were also other specific meditations uh, that the alchemists performed uh, with mandalas or drawings, and all their drawings were really meditations in images, and the powers uh, of the planetary powers, the alchemical operations were all encoded into the uh, different med- uh, images and meditation uh, that they worked with. So if we look at the alchemical meditations themselves, we find a big variety, but a large part of them are just prayers, prayers that they performed in the privacy of their own chambers, uh, also in the laboratory. And uh, they were private things to bring the connection between the above and the below into their work, whether that work was transforming themselves, purifying themselves, or um, uh, working with... Uh, the forces of alchemy and uh, the operations of alchemy in the laboratory. So prayer in the laboratory was a very important thing. Uh, that connected them with the experiment and it brought them into the realm of the divine powers, which they were trying to bring down. We're talking all alchemists from Isaac Newton and Paracelsus, and this type of meditation prayer, meditative prayer, was part of all the work on many different levels. Give you a feeling for that type of uh, type of work. i uh, one of the papers here is uh, is uh, has many uh, original prayers by alchemists, and you'll see that in the in the right hand column there uh, for download, and uh, you you get the flavor of these prayers in the way that they're supplementing to the divine to become part of their work. The idea of the quintessence is really essential in understanding how the alchemist uh, meditated. The the quintessence is the very essence of something. So of a plant, a lemon balm or something like that, the essence, quintessence, is part of that uh, thing that is extracted in the spirit or alcohol of the earth and is captured in the tincture. So that's what they're after, the, the quintessence, the very essence the energetic essence of the product, the chemical, the herb or oneself. So the quintessence is an energetic essence or spark. Uh, Paracelsus called it the the star in man. And we each of us have a quintessence and then uh, there is the cosmic quintessence of God himself. So there's a quintessence, an essence in the universe too. And there's an essence of quintessence in us. And this is beyond the normal elements, you know, beyond matter and beyond the fire, water, air, and earth, beyond our bodies. It's an invisible spirit. And that's the way the alchemists thought of the quintessence. It was called the spirit of something. And in those days, spirit is how they described energy. So the spirit was an invisible force working at something uh, a spirit of a disease or, uh, would take us and it, it they believe that each disease or each happening which mood what whatever was going on in our lives were caused by these spirits which are energy psychologically or physical it doesn't matter they were all called spirits so the quintessence is a fifth element beyond matter that is uh Spiritual or energetic—you can look at it that way too. Uh, there's a lot of interpretations, but that that's that's indeed how the alchemists thought of uh, energy in those days. They didn't really have a word for energy, or the except that it was an invisible force at work in a in any situation. So to start this, let's uh, let's read uh, one of the um, original prayers by alchemists. This is actually a composite that I. Uh, put together, but uh, it does capture the spirit of the alchemists in the meditations. Almost singular and unspeakable presence, first and last in the universe, heighten the fury of my fire and burn away the dross of my being. Cleanse my soiled soul, bathe me in your awesome light, set me free from my past, cut me loose from my boundaries. Unite me with the one thing hidden in my life, wherein is my only strength. Fill me with your presence. Allow me to see through your eye. Grant me entry into your mind. Let me resonate with your sacred will. Make me transparent to your flame and fashion me into a lens for your light only. Transmute me into an incorruptible stone and your eternal service. Like the golden light that surrounds you. So we can sense in that two quintessences, uh, two essences merging. And the alchemist is asking for this cosmic identity to come down into him and to make his essence or identity pure. So strikingly, the cosmic quintessence and the individual quintessence that we carry with us of who we really are and who and what is evolving in our consciousness, and our personalities, just like it's evolving in the whole universe, is the same quintessence. The divine quintessence and the human quintessence are the same, and the idea in, in all meditations and alchemies is to merge in these two energies. The energy we have within us and how to direct it and how we become activated and true to our own quintessence, and the quintessence of the whole universe and what is behind the chaos and evolution of life and matter uh, and energy in the universe. It has the same hidden spark, the same hidden source. And when these become one, when we surrender our ego and allow our goals, our visions, and our work to be the same as the cosmic quintessence, what's behind nature itself, then we are in a line and expressing our true quintessence. And how that comes out in us can be through our talents and through certainly individualized ways. But the whole thing is that we are serving God. It's the old uh, grail question, whom whom does it serve? It serves not us, not our ego and not our dominion of nature, but uh, the divine spark that is driving the whole universe. So that's kind of the philosophy that was behind uh, most uh, sincere meditations in the Middle Ages, uh, the alchemists and their and their contemplations. It was to become so purified and so true to their own quintessence, their own essence, that they were in line in line uh, with the divine quintessence the divine essence and what was driving in behind nature hidden it was driving everything in the universe so the the alchemists worked to make those two one and that was through uh, the operation of alchemy which are the same in the laboratory everything has its own quintessence and that, it, that is meant to be brought out that's where the power is at that's where your power is at that is where your confidence is at. That is where your expression and ability to transform yourself and your environment is at. That's where it comes from. And in plants, that is where it comes from. That same spirit of the plant that expresses itself in signatures and characteristics so strongly in nature. So uh, as the alchemists meditated, they, they were not... Really passive meditations, like you see in many disciplines, uh, they were active meditations, and that the alchemist was trying to transform something or or uh, or make uh, make something better or more perfect. So let's see if we have any questions here. I want to keep up with questions. Okay, we are looking at. Um, different kinds of uh, meditations that were performed by the alchemists, And surprisingly, um, Christian meditations were, were used by the alchemists extensively. Uh, they, were, they, they didn't know any Eastern meditations. They didn't practice yoga or anything like that. So most of the, uh, the meditations were Christian-based prayer, contemplated prayer, especially mystical prayer. And there are stages to that. Uh, Basically contemplation or concentration on something is how this this process, alchemical prayer begins. And it, it moves into if you concentrate on something long enough, you get to know it. You get to know its essences, its signatures, uh, its properties, its energies. And that that part of becoming familiar or focusing one's attention, the light of one's mind into a specific topic is how this process starts. So it's very natural, and it very often started with an alchemist sitting at a table, reading a book and studying, and then being inspired by that and trying to go deeper into it to find to find deeper essences and deeper uh, connection with the topic. So we do that all the time, but we don't carry it to the second phase. We get inspired by something. You read the books of, of alchemists, if you don't take the time to contemplate what you've read and what has inspired you, if you just let it kind of sink in, that's not an alchemical way of working with books, not like, not like The Alchemist did. Books are extremely important because they, they were gateways to light and inspiration and energy, and they carried uh, special nuances uh, that could not be find, found in just everyday life. They were the wisdom, condensed wisdom of the ages. And in those books, which they believed carried secret messages and and secret symbols, they found themselves lost, really. If you become lost in a book, you know what it feels like to be totally absorbed in that, how how freeing it is. If you don't take that to the second phase, uh, which is uh, contemplation, in other words, the ideas are mixing around and and you're carrying them with you everywhere you go, and you're interpreting different things through that vision that you picked up in a book. And the next stage is to right there and then to enter into a meditation on these ideas, not to lose it and uh, to continue. So alchemists ended up meditating right at their desk in their chairs uh, most of the time. And when they were looking for a specific connection with the divine or, or working in the laboratory, and trying to imbue and an experiment with uh, th- these energies. They would uh, enter into prayer, perhaps kneel down, or perhaps lay, lay on a couch and, uh, and go into this last phase of, uh, of what we would call meditation today. So we have a question from Jason Richardson. Thank you. Is active meditation, would you say that it is, akin to a self-guided visualized meditation uh, where symbols involved. Active meditation in alchemy had a vision in the mind or a goal, a specific goal. So for instance, gold itself was a vision, and you're working in the laboratory, um, and you're starting to starting a fermentation project, process, let's say taking uh, metallic uh, compounds, or even with, with herbs, taking herbs, uh, and you uh, put them through the initial operations of heating and cleaning and purifying. And Now you put, when they're ready for the fermentation stage to begin, you put them in an incubator. And the incubator can be your own mind, more if we're just talking about ideas or images, it can be either one. The images of alchemy contain much varied information and they were often the subjects of meditation. So the incubator was a very special thing to the alchemists, and every laboratory had an incubator somewhere in it where the decaying materials were put, where new life was supposed to spring forth from that. Sometimes the incubator started with a very disgusting, black, gurgling mass of, of chemicals or herbs, and eventually, uh, through the fermentation process new bacteria would grow the uh, substance would become alive and a new substance would be born in that in that life that was began in the uh, in the incubator at that moment it's very crucial to project a mental image of what you want in that to happen in that incubator because the material has entered now the first matter the chaos of decay and putrefaction and it's bubbling away in there and that same thing happens in us. All the rejected contents, all the hurt, all the um, emotional pain, all the chaos of our life going on is buried deep in us in that in that internal incubator. And it is only through concentrating the light of our own minds that we can, at that moment, uh, access that or project the image into it. So we don't run away from personal chaos. We don't run away from the energies that are that are stirred up and through in life we attempt to um, ferment them and to get and to change them to take that natural energy and change it into something that we we want to work with and that, that after that fermentation comes the distillation process where we work with uh, some uh, some of the energies that we're experiencing to purify them and the final stage is of course the production of the philosopher's stone or that final birth of of what we're seeking. In the laboratory, the incubator was actually hidden away, and there was always in the laboratory a tabernacle or an area where prayer was done. It was a sacred spot in the laboratory. Could be just a corner, could be a a seat at a desk with with, uh, books and things around, but it was dedicated to this kind of uh, incubator meditation, if you will, where where the alchemists would project into the experiment itself. And that process um, was very crucial. In fact, the incubator was hidden away somewhere in the lab. It wasn't in common sight. And if anyone walked into the room and, and happened just to gaze on the, the box or the incubator, uh, the whole experiment was considered ruined. And the, the alchemists would start over again because the person had projected just by noticing the box, had projected their own consciousness into it, which ruined the experiment. It was no longer the guided, concentrated image that the alchemist was trying to achieve. So uh, that's the kind of uh, how they worked with images and how they worked with uh, uh, goals and visions. Very often it was an image. It could also be an idea too, just an idea of perfection. Right, idea of goal. I think uh, I'm going to go through an al- alchemical meditation, the Azoth meditation. Okay, this is the uh, Azoth image, which is an example of the uh, the meditative emblem of an alchemist uh, that they worked with. So it's it's a um, mandala type meditation where you just move through the the uh, images on the drawing, and like all mandalas, you you start your imagery uh, right here at the center, which is the center of the mandala, which is actually the face of the alchemist at the center of the drawing. So, so in fact, some alchemists put a mirror here and meditated on the uh, on the drawing like that. Now this this drawing is on your downloads. Um, it's a colored drawing that. Uh, I restored and uh, uh, colored from old line drawings, black and white drawings that I found in uh, in some alchemy books. Uh, it's by Basil Valentine and became very popular in the Middle Ages and rena- especially Renaissance uh, work. So uh, what it is is a schematic of this whole process we've been talking about. It's the quintessence, if you will, with the three forces of alchemy, um, uh, which are uh, matter, corpus here, uh, shown as a cubic stone. And we have spirit, which is shown as the moon, and uh, anima, which is the soul, which is soul shown as the sun. So these three points, the triangle behind the emblem, are sulfur, mercury, and salt. The sun being sulfur, uh, mercury being associated with the moon, and salt being the corpus, uh, or matter. So we have energy, basically. Uh, sulfur represents energy, and the mind, uh, represented by Mercury, or soul, and, uh, and material reality, or the, or the physical body, or condition that we're working with, uh, something that's already been created. So we're going to go back to this in a second. We'll just, I'm just going to answer a few questions. So we have a question from Alex Adair. Is the philosopher's stone an actual physical substance, a mental unifying concept, or thought process, or perhaps a combination of both? Well, the, the philosopher's stone, which is uh, the keystone of alchemy, uh, it, or touchstone that transforms anything. Is actually all of these. Uh, Yeah, the laboratory uh, work with gold and the metals produces a red crystalline stone, actually, that is uh, a reddish violet color, which is typical of uh, gold. As it it forms compounds, and uh, you can see examples of that in Europe, actually, of stones. There are all kinds of stones in alchemy: vegetable stones and mineral stones, and uh, and metal stones, and the highest stone is this uh, red crystalline um, hard stone created from um, from gold, and the, and the final purification and calcination of gold. On the mental level, the philosopher's stone is this new perspective, this new confidence that comes together, where, you, where it's like a coagulation of wisdom. Beyond that, there's much more here that are only revealed really in initiations and alchemy, but there is a body of light, certainly what Paracelsus called the astral body, that is a purified body produced from our own body, a second body, and that is the philosopher's stone. So this second body of light is able to transform itself and work through all different realms of reality, all energetic levels, uh, both uh, living and dead, and uh, just like Hermes was able to travel. So is this body uh, able to do that? And it's often produced or accessed in meditations. We have the Merkaba tradition of um, of an octagon encasing this as a a vehicle of the soul. So there's lots of uh, impassioned writings about an actual body being produced from the matter, the decaying matter of our own bodies that is released often at death or before in meditation where you have this astral experience where you're outside the body. So lots of writings about that and lots of um, effort in alchemy to, to enter that final spiritual incarnation. Okay, we'll continue with a question from Daniel Johnson. When an alchemist would project an image onto an experiment, how is that done? The uh, production of an effect in matter, and uh, I've done this, and other alchemists have done this, can be best perceived, I think, through the signatures that evolve in the experiment. It requires concentration. It requires, uh, and we're talking just about an image now, so that is an image of perfection. How would the metal, how would the herb, how would that uh, alcohol express itself and what would what would it look like would it be a glowing light would it what would be the perfected essence of something what would your body look like if it was perfect that's the type of thing we're talking about what would your uh how would people see you if you were perfected if you, how would they uh, talk with you how would they interact with you if you had perfect wisdom and that's the kind of images that we're we're projecting. What would a perfected piece of goals look like? Would it not only be incorruptible in the, in the material realm, but would it also have a light of its own and be incorruptible throughout the universe through all places and all times? Would it be beyond time? So you have to uh, coalesce those ideas within yourself as, as to what this image of perfection is. And uh, it could be, what is the perfect person in your life? It could be uh, a loved one or that you're projecting or that, that doesn't even exist, like a Beatrice, uh, like Dante did, project the image of a perfect woman who became his hermetic companion uh, and guided him through hell and heaven. That's the idea we're talking about. So, uh, it, it's concentration to the point where most of us haven't been. It's called uh, the eidolon, uh, which is eidetic uh, memory. The image becomes so real that it becomes part of your. Uh, it feels real that the image feels tangible, like a topa in the um, in the Hindu tradition, where you project the image of a of a human being, and that human being becomes a servant or the uh. In alchemy, it's the same type of projection into that, that incubator. And many reports of real results, really spectacular uh, writings, but all around the world, uh, the projection of an image into reality through alchemical means. And we'll go through the Azoth and you can see how the operations of alchemy pur- purify level by level until you get to that perfect projection and multiplication of the energies of the, uh, of the image. Another question here by Umberto Mora. Is it possible to visit the plane of the quintessence using the conscious mind, or is it possible only using the unconscious mind? So uh, definitely the answer to that in alchemy and contemplative prayer is that you will be conscious of it. Uh, you will be using the conscious mind, but at the same time, the unconscious mind plays part of it. So, we we have to get to the point where unconscious and conscious are one thing. That that's the birth of the philosopher's child, if you will. That's a sacred marriage. The unconscious is feminine energy, chaotic feminine being now, uh, soul. Feelings in the present moment and um and consciousness, which is a masculine uh, talent, if you will, uh, of logic and uh, awareness and spirit and moving forth to change things. Either path is totally wrong. You take one path or the other, and you will not uh, achieve success in alchemy. And that's not me that's saying that. That's many, many books, many, many alchemists, this is crucial. These two have to come together. There's, there's no way about that. I mean, uh, my website, alchemylab.com, is completely devoted to this kind of work in, in alchemy, uniting the masculine and feminine and bringing them together. And that means uh, in our consciousness, the conscious mind and the unconscious mind. Uh, Carl Jung's alchemy is all about that, purifying that. And the, the uh, second marriage to Jung, uh, what he called the Mysterium coniunctionis, is the uh, the star moment where, where this new um, astral body we we're talking about, or this golden light, coalesces and actually forms something physical and real in the world that is incorruptible on all levels and through time. So it is definitely possible to be conscious, but also aware at the same time, of all the energies within you. So I think it's becoming conscious of the true energy, the true state of uh, something that is the quintessence. And it's, it, it's always a profound experience to be alchemist. Another uh, question here from Susan Matlock. I'm understanding here that whereas some meditative practices are aimed at conversation with uh once holy guardian angel. A chemical meditation's object is the materialization of something on this plane within the parameters of the highest good. That is one way uh, of expressing that. There's a uh, there's a practical goal. Even in a contemplative um, Christian meditation, there's this difference between the alchemist doing it and religious fervents doing it. The alchemist is always trying to materialize or make something real, there's always a return. If you go up go up into heaven in your meditation in the highest, the highest possible levels of heaven, and you meet God, you see God, you feel God's presence, you do not remain there in alchemy and in all the Hermetic tradition. You return to earth to create something new in earth, to materialize it, because um, the alchemists saw the evolution of uh, the universe as a materialization of energy into matter, and that uh, all the work, we don't remain in heaven. We don't remain at the at the knee of God, if you will, in a passive state. We, we bring God's work into the world. It can be looked at as uh, that's the work we do for God, is to make God real, to make perfection take place in the material realm. It goes all the way back to the Emerald Tablet. The um, energy perfected if it is turned into earth. The experience is brought back, told to others, right, written and shared in the real world because there's nothing in the real world that can't be perfected. There's, there's work here to be done. So it's not just passively enjoying the presence of God. It's bringing the divine back with you. Whether it's in the laboratory, it's in your own personality, or it's uh it's in the world in some way, and that's the good work, the highest good that motivates us, and I can see that being a, a good description of that. Another question from um, uh, Ona sis, Sisgan. Sorry, that's I'm not, I'm not that right. What are the first signs that tell us that we started our own spiritual purification? The for science that you're on an alchemical pathway. And really we're talking alchemy as an adult discipline, because you have to be uh, destroyed a little bit. Your, your life has to start falling down and coming to pieces all around you. You have to try to do something. And it's like nature and the world are, are, are blocking you every, everywhere you go. It's utter frustration as an adult to, to, uh, to not be able to be active in the world. And uh, it's usually ego that needs to be destroyed. It's usually ego that uh, is telling us to, I mean, in anything, career, uh, accumulating money, and uh, romance, uh, any human endeavor will fail, tends to fail unless it's alchemically done. In other words, aware, of all the opposing possibilities. We generate so much of our own nemesis in life by projecting our energies in unconscious ways and not deliberate ways uh, that we build uh, entities that come back against us, entities as being expressions of that energy that uh, come back at us and work at us. I mean, everyone's had that. Everyone has had things fail time after time and after time. Nothing's going right in your life. That's where alchemy begins for us on a personal level because we realize, it starts to make us realize that uh, there are forces in the universe and there's an unknown alchemy going on. There's something, there's a process going on that is beyond our ego. So that purification uh, that Anurah is talking about is the purification and, and very uncomfortable at times. It's the burning away, the dissolving, the, the acidic surrender of ego and all that identity we put together uh, that I'm going to do this and I'm going to be that and uh, I'm going to be something and everybody's going to not love me or bow down to me or give me money or... And that is a false constellation of reality. And because it's false, it will be burned away by the universe. It's not until we're in alignment with the uh, cosmic quintessence that things fall in line for us. And if it happens to be in, in alignment with your own personal quintessence and what you want to do in the world, that's wonderful. It's safety. it's, it's uh, everything falls into place. Synchronicities appear everywhere that support your work. When the opposite has happened, that's a clue that you need purification. You need to stop, you need to look at it, reflect, contemplate, concentrate, and meditate on on these forces so they become conscious. And you can do that in therapy, Um, you can do that in churches, you can do that in support groups like the AAA and others. Um, Or you can do it uh, in your own personal alchemy work. But uh, that's never going to go away in your life uh, until that is purified and there's a realignment of your personal soul or efforts with the universal. I have another question here from Christian Leggett. Uh, What would be... The Alchemist's view of reincarnation would be seen as a type of failure to complete the creation of the Philosopher's Stone of self. And uh, yeah, you're, you're right about that, Christian, um, the way the Alchemist uh, looked at it. And, and Hermes has some amazing writings that say just that in the Corpus Hermeticum. You have this one chance this one uh, in life to achieve the Philosopher's Stone, and it doesn't matter. To the universe, whether you do it or not, really, uh, because you'll be recycled uh, through reincarnation. If they, I mean, if they didn't call it reincarnation, they felt it to be like a chemical process where you, the constituents and the essences, which are never destroyed, soul is is never destroyed in alchemy, which is essence and quintessence. Those forces are always reclaimed just like they're reclaimed in the laboratory. And they um, are reborn, you could say, um, in new matter, in new salt in new constellations beyond time and space. So the, the process doesn't really rely on human beings. It doesn't rely on our species. Uh, it relies on life and consciousness. But there is the goal and the great work of alchemy is to achieve it in a lifetime, and that's what the alchemists were trying to do. That's what made them so driven when you look at at it in in that way. So we have another question. Thank you for these questions. They're very, very interesting. Diana Foster writes, I'm new to alchemy and have been reading some things about it and periodically run across something called Ormus. Can you explain what it is? Ormus is... uh, it deals with monatomic gold. So it's a uh, perfection of gold or an alchemical process of working with gold. We have David Hudson's work, a modern alchemist in Texas, who worked with volcanic soils to, uh, to produce what he called monatomic elements, which are the pu- most purified elements uh, that could be produced from something. They are so pure that they don't react to any chemical testing. Uh, you can't really say that you've got monatomic elements, and you have to take the word for people that you do. Ormus is like orbitally rearranged uh, molecular masses that produce um, a type of white gold, as an example. But, and um, it, it, the, the, the history of it is interesting. It goes back to ancient Egypt uh, with the pharaoh Akhenaten, we talked about white gold and they've even discovered uh, a storage uh, facility which I visited of his in, in the Sinai Peninsula. And there was supposedly this this white powder there. I have worked with uh, uh, the white powder of gold, uh, trying to uh, verify that it has special uh, characteristics, but none of the samples that I've been given in, in my laboratory uh, have ever um, produced anything startling. The only thing I've seen is um, some of the uh, white powder in a solution does uh, help plants grow. It definitely uh, is a great fertilizer uh, and it brings out the life force in plants, and that may be significant. I've not done a a lot of work with it. There's a lot of... You know, possibility for fraud uh, in the Ormus community. I think some of them, the processes to make it are not as as um, reliable, perhaps, or consistent as you want them to be. I mean, some people make it in their swimming pools, and they, they, they bottle that water and selling it. Same processes of the sun chlorine and making Ormus. Uh, so many ways to make ormas, and there's so many um, compounds uh, of monatomic elements that can't be detected. I mean, you know, um, you want to be careful. Now, again, there's this history there, and there's a possibility that uh, there is white powder of gold that uh, has miraculous characteristics. Just it's never been stumbled across in my laboratory or given to me to test, so... I keep an open mind about it. Tom Bliss asks, uh, how does alchemy interact with enlightenment? Uh, alchemy is enlightenment, really. If, if It's the process of perfection. So whatever we're talking about, if you can enlighten a coal, a lump of coal, what does it become? It becomes a diamond through the pressure and and heat of alchemical operations. That's... I mean, a piece of coal enlightened is a diamond, and a, and a, a confused, uh, instinctive, um, uh, emotionally overridden, and um, uh, needy and and angry person is that lump of coal too. And you enlighten that person in alchemy by taking him through these operations of alchemy and these stages of transformation, and imbue him or her with wisdom. It is really the possibility of wisdom that, that uh, makes alchemy possible, the possibility that we can learn and know and have direct experiences of reality when we get to a high enough con- state of consciousness, uh, a Gnostic revelation, if you will, uh, a direct perception <clears throat> of alchemy um, and the principles of alchemy in nature. On the spiritual level, Enlightenment is perhaps more in line with what you're, what you're thinking. The use of the word is, but uh, in alchemy, enlightenment takes place on all levels: the mental, the physical, and the spiritual level too. And the spiritual enlightenment is just that: enlightenment, becoming light. In alchemy, the, there's just no doubt in in, a, in alchemy that uh, the production of the of a body of light, an actual incarnated body, a conscious body is, or it seems to be the final goal, the final um, expression in the, in the universe. And that's what, from the Big Bang, that is where the universe uh, is heading, that transformation of light and energy into matter and back again. Okay. Henry Novaki, um uh, as is the quintessence the same as the soul? I think for all intents and purposes it is, uh, in most thinking, most traditions, the quintessence being that fifth element that is beyond material elements, beyond fire, water, air, and earth, is that the hidden soul that we can't really put our finger on. But it's very present and it's a very powerful force in alchemy. Not only do we have souls, every single thing in the universe has a soul Uh, a rock has a soul everything in the alchemical view is very animated and driven by its quintessence and wanting to become what it what it should be in the universe so what was projected at the big bang if you will of what that thing will be when it's perfected so quintessence and soul are are the same thing and the efforts to uh, to bring out the quintessence, are the same in all traditions, uh, religious traditions too, about transforming the soul. The idea is that uh, at one time, uh, we were perfected. We were all one, one soul, and we were one mind. And uh, we got split apart when the universe came into reality, when, when this uh, constellation, if you will, of reality came into being, this universe. We were split into these two opposing forces, love and hate, male and female, positive and negative, however you want to look at it. Our soul was split to two. That's very much a religious idea, but it's very much an alchemical idea too. And all the operations of alchemy and all the religions in the world and all the prayers and and uh, rituals are about bringing those two pieces back together as one again should be in a perfected universe. So it's going through an explosion uh, and a division of the one thing into two. And that creates energy in the universe, those those opposing dualities, male and female. We all know how much energy that creates. And positive and negative, that's electricity. And, and uh, everything, uh, that's one of the first things you realize when you try to understand what's really going on, they said everything has opposites, that opposites are what drives everything. And the alchemists believe there was a universal way of working with that. Another question from Alex: In the book, the secret symbols of the Rosicrucians, sixteenth and seventeenth centuries, are symbols also layered in alchemical manner along with spiritual and philosophical layers. Oh yes, uh, the the um, Rosicrucians were alchemists, and especially in the sixteenth and seventeenth century, and uh, almost all the uh, symbols of the al- uh, alchemists are symbols of the Rosicrucians. Many of them were originated from Rosicrucian writings. Basil Valentine. There was a huge contribution uh, by the Rosicrucian movement in the uh, middle sixteenth century and seven, early sixteenth uh, and early. 1700s, and it was the Christian Rosencrantz immersion into um, into common uh, knowledge. And it does indeed seem that there was a secret group that were of alchemists who were Christians, and they were also philosophers. You know, so they weren't just the puffers, the the alchemists who were working to make gold. You know, to change lead into gold, which was uh, you know a good part of the uh, alchemical. efforts back in the 1500s, the Rosicrucians added something, and they added this whole spiritual dimension. And they added, most significantly, uh, this idea that once you go into heaven, the idea is to return to earth. So the Rosicrucian focus on the suffering of fellow men, and the suffering in the world, and the imperfection uh, in the world and the chaos in the world, that was really new to alchemy. What's well, not there in Egyptian alchemy as much as it is after the rose Christian movement uh, expressed itself. And so the symbols are the same. The rose cross is the symbol of the unfolding of the stone in the heart, and that's where it's born, in, in the, uh, uh, the heart being a union of uh, uh, mind and emotion. So uh, you can interpret uh, Rosicrucian symbols alchemically and vice versa, you can interpret um, alchemical symbols um, in a Rosicrucian way. Martin Smith has a question. Besides listening here and reading the attached doc, where does one start studying alchemy? I think, uh, uh, well, there's a list of recommended uh, starting points. attached uh, here in your files, uh, a lot of websites to start start at, uh, operated by different peoples. Uh, the Rosicrucian Teachings is, is a, a very good way to start. Uh, there's different uh, programs and study groups. Uh, there's a lot of Facebook uh, groups where a lot of discussion, we have like 20,000 members in the Al- Alchemy study groups on uh, Facebook, and there's a lot of interest in how to begin this work and the Rosicrucian uh, uh, websites and all the active conversations are very good places to start this. You know, don't, uh, don't necessarily give a guy who calls them an alchemist cause himself an alchemist. You mean the bar or something you know, don't give him money to change lead into gold. It happens all the time. There was just, there was just a case in Reno where a guy was in a bar and, uh, he met an alchemist, and the alchemist was changing one-dollar bills into hundred-dollar bills for everyone there. And he did it quite a quite a few times. And uh, a couple people said he would change <laughs> change the money in bulk if they brought in uh, five thousand dollars worth of one-dollar bills, and he'd change them into hundred-dollar bills. And then, but. Of course, he had to go back to his room to do it, and he never returned to the bar. So somebody actually gave, gave me $5,000 to have that happen. So just don't be gullible. You know, use your, use your gut to, to understand and feel the genuineness of of the group or the person who is trying to teach you alchemy. Because unfortunately, there's still puffers in the world who, who uh, study alchemy based on ego motives, and, uh, or just to be a guru, just to be someone that people admire. And there's all kinds of things going on, you know, the human condition, and just be uh, aware. Is the principle of uh, sympathetic vibration related to alchemical practices? Suli once wants to on, know that. That's a good question. Uh, it is indeed sympathetic vibration or... Uh, ideas of uh, sympathetic magic are alchemical and and do seem to have their source in alchemy. Uh, A lot of New Agers have taken this to other places that have nothing to do with alchemical methods. And uh, I I don't, uh, the idea of the word as a vibration in nature is very real, I think, very true. And and even if you look at the Big Bang, uh, the, the, the sound of the Big Bang, is, uh is the word that created uh, the universe and that's the idea of the logos but uh, you can abuse that idea and, and make it too simple if you have a perfect vibration I think that the uh, chemical work takes place through that um let's look at our Azoth drawing okay there's there's um uh, in the Azoth, there's uh, seven steps to the transformation, starting with uh, lead and the planet uh, Saturn here. But anyway, it starts with calcination and works through these different operations and dissolution, separation, conjunction, uh, fermentation, and distillation, the final coagulation, which shows a androgynous youth emerging from a grave. But read the paper that I've attached uh, to this, Download it about this drawing and understand these symbols before you do the meditation, of course, because the idea is to focus here and have all these symbols that come together, and they will. They'll come together in an amazingly meditative experience if you practice this meditation, which is described. Now. So there are actually, and they're even numbered, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven stages. You get to this final stage of gold, which is the metal gold, there's an eighth step here. And that is actually uh, uh, through Basil Valentine to return to the conjunction, to return to earth. In some drawings, the sun is actually shown here, which means that's the final step not there. So it's, it's a hidden uh, eighth step in this drawing, which is explained online there. But what that means is that the, there are like seven notes, um, the, the seven notes of the octave. And when you get to that final seventh note and bu- increase the vibration, then that becomes the next note, the complete octave, and that becomes the next note of a of a new octave at a higher level of vibration. That's the music of the spheres and uh, and the audition, uh, uh, projection of energy into the universe. Uh, Krishna has another question. Can you speak more about the crossover of the figures in Toth and Hermes, Enoch and others, and how they may have influenced more modern forms of alchemy? Well, we have in the Egyptian teachings, uh, where the alchemists traced the origins of their work, uh, the idea that there was this single teacher who brought alchemy and, and the sciences, brought wisdom to the planet, and that, that was Toth. Toth became the Roman Hermes, or the Greek Hermes, I'm sorry, in the Roman Mercury. And uh, Enoch was another part of this tradition that there was one teacher who survived through time all the way up into modern times, according to some legends. But that uh, I think that it's more of an uh, analogy about how the human spirit has incarnated this desire for perfection. And it's been taught down through the ages. And uh, it's just, in other words, assigning that to a material person. Christ could be part of that, uh, Buddha, uh, that lineage of enlightenment, which is very similar in all these ways. Basically, the teachings of Toth and Hermes uh, are where it all started is about two levels of reality. There is above and below, there is the in between where we're at. Uh, where the energy and matter come together, you can look at it as energy above and matter below, so or lightness of light above and darkness below. That is how they express this vertical reality, and they also were very careful to show that there is a horizontal reality of uh, uh, masculine and feminine, or uh, positive and negative, or moving that way and moving this way, in opposite directions. And that all these come together on this cross of being where we find ourselves. And the point that the alchemist seeks is that point at this very center of the cross, cross of being, where we unite above and below, divine and earthly, and we we unite masculine and feminine within ourselves to that single point within the cross. And this is where the rose is at in the Rosicrucian teachings. That is the uniting of all the opposites that come together. And that is perfection. That is where the gold will grow. And that is where the rose being the highest vibration uh, in, the, in the Bach flower theories uh, of any other flower. So that's how they all tie in. And I think I, uh, in my research, and I've done a lot of research about this, um, whether these were the same man. I've been to Egypt trying to find out if there were documents passed on But there is this tradition, undeniable, that uh, somehow the chemical teachings were handed down through different incarnations of the same person or perhaps just different mental rebirths of the same ideas through time, uh, to the point where it's called the perennial philosophy, this idea that there are opposites that have to come together and that there is an above and a below and to study the interactions between above and below and also the interactions between masculine and feminine, between consciousness and unconscious. So it's an all-pervasive, um, powerful discipline. Another question here, uh, Mike Dagus, um As one achieves this perfected state, will he see others perfected around him also? Uh, that's a good question. In many ways, um, as you become perfected, you attract others who are also perfected. It's the ancient idea that it takes a seed of gold uh, to make gold. So it takes one person all of a sudden to change reality, to make it possible for others to follow. And that's also part of uh, this tradition of uh, Toth Hermes uh, and Enoch and uh, others, that they were this uh, seed of gold on the planet. and, And that makes it possible for more to follow and for more synchronicities to occur that connect these seeds of gold. Just like pieces of gold, if you cut them apart, they have a, temper, a tendency to compact together, especially if you put mercury with them to make a, a solid piece. So there are connections created between perfected individuals or enlightened individuals, I think. and. It also means that you will identify or resonate with others on the path. That happens uh, many, many times in in the evolution of a person's soul, uh, that these soulmates come who are on the same path and at the same vibration. So I I hope uh, we're running over a little bit here, and I apologize. Uh, I've given you some great resources here, and I urge you to download them that will help you um, expand on the article I've written. Um, there's also a link in the article itself to some more, more documents and actual recordings of the quietest meditations, uh, which was a kind of Christian contemplation that was uh, popular in the Middle Ages and many alchemists practices. It, it It was uh, created by uh, uh, Miguel Molinos, who was a uh, Spanish monk and, uh, he wrote a little book called The, the uh, Spiritual Guide, and uh, he just put down some spiritual principles on how to connect with God in, in prayer. And it was a very small book, but it became a bestseller in Europe, if you will. I mean, it was circulated everywhere in, in 15 different languages, as a matter of fact. It became rivaling the Bible in people reading it. It was so revealing to people. And the church promoted it at first, but then they realized that uh, Malinus was starting a a movement where people could perfect themselves or enlighten themselves or connect with God in the privacy of their own homes. They didn't need the church anymore. Well, as soon as the church fathers realized that, uh, they um, started to uh, excommunicate uh, Malinus and also ban his books, all his books, even after he died. Because they let the cat out of the bag, you know, and uh, they don't—they weren't able to control uh, spiritual perfection, and uh, they they publicized that that was possible. So, those recordings are there too. That's from a webinar I did on the on the Quietus movement, and you can also read the writings of Saint Teresa of uh, Avila, uh, who was part of that move, movement—a big, uh, big part of that. So. The meditation techniques, which is a four-step quieting, basically, and a reunion with God and divine, is very alchemical. And you can see that these four steps are part of the operations of alchemy, too. I've got another question here from Alex. Um, Attempts to meditate upon symbols, etc. Do you have any recommendations on how to cut through the white noise that manifests in the deeper level of attempted meditation? Um, this white noise uh, problem is sometimes it is an actual noise. But often white noise is also images. You get lots of images that are interfering with the uh, meditation. And it's all extraneous stuff. And uh, the really, uh, the more you fight it or the more you become aware of it, the more it destroys your meditation. So I think that that, that noise... If you either can ignore it or you can find a way uh, through it by, you know, going with it, going with if it's a white static noise, then that's chaos. If you're chaos, a good way to enter meditations, uh, because in the chaos, if we look at white noise as chaos and all these images and chaotic stuff going on in the mind as you attempt to meditate, that's really a doorway. This may seem hard to... Except if you enter the chaos and just go with it, flow with it, and let it go on for a while in meditation, that becomes the meditation. The curious thing is that there is, as we know, mathematics and physics and chaos. There's strange attractors where there's order in chaos. And eventually, through that white noise, whether it be imagery or or actual sounds, there will, will come uh, order, some type of order, some type of dominant image, perhaps some some words or words that uh, that are there in the chaos. So we run from chaos, but chaos is essential, it's the first matter, it's where all the work begins. Now the question with Thomas, and uh, this will be our last Thomas Peisel, Thank you so much, Dennis. A uh, question, do you see a connection between lucid dreaming and the Philosopher's Stone and in developing this second body? Um, lucid dreaming, where you um, know you're awake and move around in this body, I think uh, it, it is a doorway to to uh, this second body or this body of light, this astral body. Uh, many of the techniques uh, from some of the uh, esoteric groups um, encourage lucid dreaming uh, to uh, Create, help create this body or help experience this body. I think uh, I think there is a connection there, but it's not the same. The lucid, the lucid dream, the body that moves through, under your control and can sometimes be projected out of the body, is not the same as the astral body, body which is um, a totally different experience. But many traditions say lucid dreaming can lead to it. Thank you Susan uh, and martin uh, and all of you for your comments and participating in this uh, hangout, which is my first and uh, so thank you very much i I appreciate your attention and uh, God bless and find God. <laughs>